I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Anthony Pizza. And we love to watch. We love to watch? That's just a name that someone called us. We're the podcast with no name. Peter, that would be a name that you've called us. No, it's a title. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, our, our podcast name is Joe. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, we're, we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We make a mean plate of spaghetti. Uh, I don't know if that's funny. Peter's either laughing hysterically or has left the show. What, what you should say is that you make a mean pasta for shula, shoot him up. Uh, there we go. We pasta like anti-pasta. <laughs> uh, anti-pasta for an anti-hero. Yeah, anti-pasta for the anti-hero is really good, Anthony. Yeah, Thank you. That's really good. Uh, we're going to say we came up with it. Uh, that would be a good name for the month, but it's not the name for the month. Uh, but no, we're uh, we are a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we can compare and contrast. And we're in April, and it is our first episode in our uh, The Man With No Name trilogy plus one month uh, where we are covering um, uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and, uh, and Once Upon a Time in the West, we when we did uh, what was it? We did Rio Bravo last uh, June, I believe, and we were like, "How have we basically never done a western besides Maverick?" Uh, <laughs> and we 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 set about that in the next year we were going to correct that, and this feels like a big, maybe an overcorrection, but definitely a chance to talk about some of our our favorite movies. And we know, you know, these are these are classic, these are older films that we we typically cover, uh, not necessarily older films that we typically watch, but typically uh, older than we usually cover on the show. So we're trying to take it seriously. Like for my my sake, uh, Peter. You know, I, I've been trying to watch other spaghetti westerns that I had missed at the time. Like, before this movie, I also watched uh, Django for the first time. which Django! Um, and, you know, I've read a couple books about uh, about the director of these movies. One about the way that his politics has influenced and one just kind of a critical appraisal of his work. So, I feel, unlike some of our episodes and our months, I feel overly prepared, if anything, to talk about um, Sergio Leon's... <laughs> Um, <laughs> your 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 running theme of being able to just pronounce names is, is perfect. Do you think that Gio Leons, director <laughs> of uh, Sergio Legione? It's a little bit too much spice. Yeah, we had Anthony Pizzo on, so Sergio Legione. Going Russian. Anthony's going Russian. Oh no! Those too far, you motherfuckers. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what. If you are like, "Hey, uh, Sergio Leone is too too ethnic to pronounce," uh, the 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 people who released the movie thought so too, because he was <laughs> for fistful of dollars. The movie we're going to cover today, um, he, he was his his uh, credit was uh, 
replaced with Bob Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> so that's true. We're, so we're Bob talking Robert. about uh, the first and last film of Bob Robertson. Uh, Robert but I'm excited to get into it. Bob Robertson. Yeah. He went, then he went off and I joined mean, the band. Was Robbie. Yeah, you'd have to join the band. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> carry that weight. Great song. Uh, yeah, so we're. I think we're really excited to do this month. Uh, and it's also like it's it's at once a year or twice a year. Sometimes we like to do we, – we rarely do or we try not to do like directors uh, as a theme. But I, we like the idea of doing like, hey, let's do all the Batman movies or all the Mad Max movies. And the Man With No Name trilogy uh, feels like something that Peter and I – A, it's right up our alley in what we like to talk about. I know it's all movies that Peter and I love. Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is one of my ten favorite movies of you all know, that'd time. Be a good, that'd be a good theme month one uh, one year, like just a bunch of people mo- choosing movies you hate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes those are chosen for me. I, as we found out last month, I accidentally chose two movies that Peter hates because I uh, tried to program a month around feelings. Uh, so that was a big <laughs> Not a mistake. Fan. Not a fan. Not a fan. No, we found that out uh, last week when we talked about the uh, much, much critically complicated, crit- critically divisive movie Inside Out. Uh, Great movie. Not to Peter. I agree feelings. with you on the part that it's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's like, I'd like this if there was only the Lewis Black character. <laughs> that's all I feel. Well, that, if um, it went inside his head, that's what it would look like. I think so. Especially when we were talking about the movie Inside Out. Uh, but yeah, so no, we're, we're starting. Sadness and horny. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it one one feeling one all day. of the core memories are mixed with those two <laughs> sad sad horny uh, but yeah we're we're joined today by noted italian last namer uh anthony pizzo <laughs> pizzo pizzo um it's fun to say it is i'd like uh tony pizzo um anthony. who's who's joining us to talk about this movie tony <laughs> Not Tony. I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop saying that. <laughs> Please, Anthony, it's Bob Robertson. Uh, Peace. Bob uh, Robertson pizza. Much like most of his episodes, is already a little off the rails. <laughs> uh, but we're so happy to have you back. I, th- I feel like it's been. Uh, it's I feel like while. it's been a couple. It's been a couple years. Uh, Has it? Which. I think so. These things go so fast. Like, we're like, oh, we got to get that person back on the – Yeah, I guess it – because I think the last one I did with you guys was – You did a Star Trek with us. I did. I did did that. uh, But I think I actually recorded that before I did Gentlemen for Blondes, right? Oh, yeah. So, gentlemen – so, that was less than two years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Um, yeah, the Star Trek got shot and put on a shelf. uh, Yes. until, Until the public was ready for it. (laughs) <laughs> Which is ironically what happened with this movie as well in the United States, because this movie was released in the same year as the other two in the Dollars Trilogy, because they didn't have a lot of confidence for it in the United States. So, yeah, we did that to you, uh, and then we released them all at once. So, I imagine you'll be in other things that get released this month that we've recorded eight years ago. Um <laughs> But yeah, it does go really fast when we're booking guests. It'll be like, okay, we got to get them back on the show. Mm-hmm. We loved having them on. And then it's like, when's the last time we had them? We look at our calendars and we're like, oh my gosh, they're a ghost. <laughs> because it's been so long. And we rarely have ghosts on. Rarely. But well, we, you we do are today. 
We are thrilled to have you back on the show. Oh, it's great. So, Anthony, back. why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, uh, if they haven't listened to uh, the last few episodes that you were on, and also why you chose, as we gave you a few options, to come on and talk about A Fistful of Dollars. Uh, well, I'm Anthony Pizzo. Uh, I draw things on the internet. Right now, I'm, uh, I'm making my way through Six Feet Under, which is very good. Uh, and I've also just taken to drawing... Uh, since that's a, now on a weekly schedule, I'm uh, just draw, drawing random uh, pop culture things, and that's a lot of fun. And uh, I chose yeah, for a this- while you're doing that daily, right? Uh, yeah. Episode like- a day. It was a very, it was a very fun. I mean, your drawings are are fantastic, and it was very fun to log on every day and be like, well, "What did what did he watch last night? What is, <laughs> what's he drawing right now?" Yeah, I had to slow that down because of uh, PA school. Yeah, that'll do it. Uh, so, so now that's that's only once a week because I really can't like it, it's a struggle to get an hour even a week, in the weekend. Uh, so and now it's just like I draw something unrelated to anything and that's fun. Yeah. And a, PA school is, of course, where you learn to be the patriarch for the Bernstein Bears. It is indeed. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they give you a book of all the pre-approved jokes. Yeah. Like uh, you're gonna you're gonna be paw. Yeah, you 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 get a flannel shirt first day because you know by the time graduation it's got to be worn in. You know, it's yeah, it's got to be comfortable. It's very, it's very important. You know, it's not like those doctors where like they give you a starchy white coat at graduation and it's all stiff and everything. No, like it's got to be it's got to be comfortable. It's got to be a shirt that people associate with you. Peter, I'm pretty sure you're editing this episode. You can just take me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and, you know actually, like, you can take yourself out by not sending me the track. It's, yeah. a, it's a very inclusive college too. Like we have people trained to be country bears. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I, yeah, like, I heard their jamboree program is excellent. It is. It's an excellent jamboree program. You know, like norm in normal times, you'd be able to walk through uh, the campus. You'd people hear people like singing the old uh, country staples that are part of that show, and it's uh, it'd be a fun atmosphere. It's amazing how much money you can spend in one of those programs purely on jugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the jug cost is just astronomical. I mean, you 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 think they're a sturdy instrument. But uh, the problem is bears don't have thumbs. (laughs) They tend to drop the chugs. They do. And then they get mad. And uh, (laughs) then, you know, God help help whoever's around because they're not angry at them, but they're in the way. The the jug vendors, as as it would be, um, the the milkmen, uh, they made them sign a, 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 a very complicated insurance contract that meant that they were not responsible for any uh, jug misadventures. You know, it's it's a it's a most people say that bear attacks happen because people get between a mother and her cubs. That's simply not true. It's because someone's dropped their jug and they're mad. <laughs> I'd be I'd be just ornery as heck if I dropped my jug. Mm hmm. And I'm no bear. <laughs> That's one of the main classes, right? Is like learning to only be somewhat ornery. <laughs> yeah, it's learning to be like properly family friendly ornery. Yeah, like yeah, you, you I'm just glad. Like, like I, I know it took a couple of lawsuits, but I am glad they they allowed uh, pot school to be open up to to people of any gender. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good anyone can be a paw bear. Is what there, there's I think. a lot of there's a lot of good paws out there, and they're not all assigned men at birth. Yeah, I, yeah. I, that's important. Um, I, I it's hope a, it's a very that, inclusive paw program. Did you yeah. hear about the? Did you hear about what happened to paw bears? Uh, 
brother. I did not. He passed away. He choked on a salmon. Uh, oh, no. And um, yeah, it's a, just a really, it's a bad way to go. Uh, and then Paw Bear had to be a Paul Bear. <laughs> And as we all know, his his brother's name, which was likely brother. <laughs> brother? <laughs> not a lot not a lot of like what, what will we call this this bear? <laughs> we'll call him well, brother. He has a brother. <laughs> that's that's the key, like one one of the biggest courses at Paw School. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> unlearn all the names that you've ever learned in your life. It's kind of like from that from that perspective, it's like a clockwork orange. Like they put up like Steve and then they show like a fucking the atom bomb going off. And pretty soon you're like specific names? No, thank you. Uncle Bear, Paw Bear, Sister Bear. Like, and then if you join like a group band, you have to have you know, like names that rhyme. Man, what a hassle. Mm-hmm. What the, the the name change office down at the the bear uh, administrative office is just they're up to their ears in bear name changes, ursine relations, and body parts because they still are bears, and that's important to remember. <laughs> yeah, like you know, I'm all in for I'm all for inclusivity, but uh, I don't think that we should have bears and uh, humans on the same campus because whoa well you know if you've seen the maulings that i have (laughs) i've gone through three roommates all of them accidentally got between a bear and uh, their broken jug (laughs) uh my condolences were you a paul bear at paul school (laughs) no i hated all of them Is the joke better the first time or the second time? I don't know. <laughs> Editing will tell. Uh, so anyways, what are we doing here today, Aaron? Uh, the uh, good, the bad, and the ugly. So, Anthony, <laughs> before we get into it, why did you want to come on and talk about A Fistful of Dollars? Because it's been forever since I've been on the show. Yeah, I, but I mean, I we, we gave you more than one option. <laughs> Uh, saying, like, why did you pick this movie? Because I, cause I now, really love it. Like, it, it's a staple of... Uh, you know, it's a staple. It's it's maybe one of the first spaghetti westerns I ever saw. I actually made a uh, I made a movie in high school, and I recreated the uh, the the scene where he, where Ramon keeps shooting him. That's fantastic because I was I was excited that we could get a true dyed in the wool Italian American on <laughs> to kick this month off, so you can uh, help us. Uh, have an excuse to speak for all of Italian culture. You know, I, I hate to spring it on you guys, but I do have a long list of uh, grievances from times that you have maybe perhaps unknowingly besmirched uh, the good name of Italians. Uh, huh. I have my lawyer. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> mark mark that one down too, Frank. <laughs> uh, let me. Uh, uh, what happened then? <laughs> wow. Okay. Another one. Pivot. No, that's a different thing I'm doing now. I'm going to need to start a pivot table on this one. I, I, I'm doing Fred Willard's character from A Mighty Wind, so you can't get me on this one, Chief. <laughs> he did say Chief. Let's look into that. Of police. Uh, let's see if we Of can. police. <laughs> chief of police. Well, that's just... Uh, that's just. Uh, that's also I, bad, I, I know, but I'm saying you're bad. <laughs> I'm glad that you came on also because... I know you love westerns too, and so it's like if we're gonna do four westerns uh, every five years, uh, we probably should bring on some folks that uh, love the genre so they can dork out with us because this is gonna be a, a dork out kind of episode. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a dork out kind of month. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Like it's it's I am definitely not interested now. If I mean if I watch these movies and didn't like them, I don't know why we'd be covering them <laughs> on We Love to Watch, but um, uh, but it is like. 
I don't have that many bad things or critical like things to say about fucking the three dollars trilogy and Once Upon a Time in the West. Like uh, they are movies that pulled me into a genre that. I had, like, earmarked, I think, like, a lot of people as, like, uh, movies for our dads or our grandpas or something like that. And just because – even though I I ended up, I think, uh, uh, falling in love with a lot of, like, you know, those older westerns from the 30s and 40s, the the John Waynes and the Gary Cooper type stuff, like, you know, as a a 15 and a 16-year-old – um. You know, it just seemed like the most boring thing in the world. And also, like, a lot of things, like, the type of Westerns that were being shown on, like, some ABC affiliate in Bismarck, North Dakota at 1 p.m. on on um, on Sunday What also were not, like, the classics of the genre mm-hmm. in general. So, um, I oh, remember that – I forgot to mention, uh, the first yeah. time I saw – uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was in the middle of a hurricane. The ideal experience. <laughs> I was watching it on my laptop uh, just while a hurricane was raging outside. Because the thing that these films really hit home on is that the world itself is uncaring about individuals, and I'm sure you felt that it's, in the middle it's true. of a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I uh, was going to say, it's funny when you have a specific experience tied to, like, when you watched a movie. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, I have specific experiences of, like, well, uh, I watched this uh, in a weird Airbnb where I where I can hear a couple next door arguing very loudly. I can at tell why this person turns arguing. into an Airbnb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least, uh, at least if they were, uh, you know, having fun, uh, I could be like, ah, everyone's happy, right? I'm not sleeping. <laughs> and they're not sleeping either. We're all not sleeping together. Uh, <laughs> I have specific memories sometimes where I'm like, I saw this on, I saw this in this one weird specific situation. And like, you can't ever really shake that even on subsequent, super comfortable, chill. Mm-hmm. Like I saw it in a theater because it was in a, you know, a revival screener screening. Like sometimes you can't shake that. Like, I watched this while there was the the trees were getting ripped out of the ground and <laughs> I was wondering if my car was going to get washed away into the ocean. <laughs> but I remember that. Like, I remember I had a, I had a friend in high school, a good friend of mine, uh, who, you know, we one of those friends that you just watch movies with all the time. And uh, at one point, like, after knowing him a long time, he, like, mentioned his, his favorite movie was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which felt like new information for me and i was like what like we're renting all these like uh you know pie and cube and all the other one word cool late 90s movies and your favorite movie is a fucking western like with clint eastwood <laughs> like it it sounded to me like uh n- not cool and definitely like uh something that you just ended up liking because your dad liked it or something like that and he's like have, have you ever seen it like um, I, I, you know, he properly chastised me for <laughs> for being like judgmental about which about thinking that the the good, the bad, and the ugly was a weird favorite movie. Uh, I think sometime in the next few months I watched it. You know, it's a long movie. I'm watching it not in a, an ideal format because it would have been the late '90s, so we're talking like on a probably a 19 inch TV in full frame. And I was fucking. <laughs> you were standing behind Anthony while a hurricane was going on. <laughs> yeah, I was watching Anthony through the window during the hurricane. Not um, ideal. Not ideal. I forgot a hat too, so it was very wet. 
Well, you brought a hat and it was promptly carried away. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember if I had a hat at the beginning. I know at the end I very much did not. Very hatless. <laughs> um, pants also. <laughs> Hard to say. We're gone. Um, I was wearing new pants, which was extra. Like, so it's possible that pants blew off me and then in the course of the storm, a new pair of pants went directly over my shoes. Um, <laughs> perfectly. Well, did the, I mean, I guess it's a good good uh, question to answer here. Did the movie knock your socks off? No. But not like they did metaphorically, but my socks were – I used rubber bands and I tied them twice because I was – I mean, look. I'm, <laughs> you I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you When you're going to watch socks. a movie outside someone's house in a hurricane, <laughs> like you got to take some precautions, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Practice, practice safe stalking. Um, but yeah, so wait, what did you did? Did you immediately jump into the? Oh, I immediately two? like I fucking loved. It. Like I was like, oh, I love every bit of this. Like I was enraptured for the whole thing. Like it immediately grabbed me, and then I started being like, well, where's the other good westerns? Like when you're that age and you see something of a genre that you wrote off, like or just like didn't connect with. Uh, yeah. It feels like all of a sudden a new world is is open to you. Uh, Peter, I, you and I have talked about that many times about like when I finally cracked my weird thing where I just couldn't quite get into comics about a year and a half ago. It was it was like, holy cow, I have so much new media to consume. <laughs> um, and then also like I had like a refresh of that uh, like Western spaghetti Western specifically um, about probably like 10 years ago when the AV Club, back when it was uh, a, a worthwhile to read, uh, did a Gateways to Geekery on Spaghetti Westerns. And I, I found a bunch that I hadn't, um, you know, that, that I couldn't could just find walking around random like movie rental stores and stuff like that. So there was a ton of stuff that I added to my list uh, that I ended up loving. Like I watched like The Great Silence. Mm, great movie uh, and stuff like yeah great movie uh and then there still is like from those lists i feel like there's still like a couple that i've always meant to see that didn't like Django or a bullet for the general or uh uh <laughs> i was about to say like i think i could say it in the way it's pronounced but then i got nervous because i'm very bad at that on the show and i was like should i just call it no. companions uh but it's companeros <laughs> um <laughs> so <laughs> So, uh, so I like I I thought it'd be fun as we did this month too to not just uh, rewatch all these movies which I love, but uh, to to watch some of those other spaghetti westerns that um, that are a little bit outstanding for me. So I I think it makes sense before we get into a fistful of dollars to kind of set up the month that we talk a little bit about why where the spaghetti westerns came from, but also Italy. about. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, well, you guys ready to talk about Fistful of Dollars? Uh, I didn't know. This is this going to sound really dumb. I didn't. Like, I thought that Spaghetti Western, like, had something to do with maybe, like, the budget of it or something. Like, it took, oh, like a shoe, like, instead of a shoestring, a spaghetti string? Yeah, or, or just, like, you know, spaghetti is, like, the type of thing that's super cheap to make. And so, like... I did not like recognize it was like a I guess an ethnic slur. <laughs> We're taking it back. Yeah, was... just, yeah, but it is more fun to say than Italian Western, right? It is. It's way more fun. Uh, did you? I mean, an may... entire group of people to spaghetti. Well, look, hold on. 
Did you guys, when you heard Spaghetti Western, were you immediately like, I know exactly why it's called this? Yes, but let me take a step back really quickly. (gasps) Uh, Anthony, did you know the the term Spaghetti Western is referring to Italians? Yeah. Because they were filmed Um, in Italy. Yeah. (laughs) I I knew that. uh, Let me take a step back. There's no such thing called, like, macaroni noir, so how the fuck... (laughs) Oh man, there should be a uh, there should be a macaroni noir genre. <laughs> all made by children. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like it's all that like be kind rewind style. Oh yeah, oh, it's yeah. all sweeted. Yeah, sweeted. that would be a herring western if it was a sweet. Any, anyways, Peter, you fucking smart guy, you. How did you immediately uh, know what it was referring to? Um, no, it's not that I immediately knew. It's that I came to this all very kind of backwards or you know roundabout. Um, and it's that I decided my sister got me a dvd netflix account when i was in junior high i got very excited about like expanding my knowledge and basically was like trying out all sorts of different genres i tried a bunch of samurai movies and i was like these are amazing and then someone was like well the best samurai movies were made by akira kurosawa so then i watched the four or five you know key kurosawa samurai movies um especially also when someone was like oh Magnificent Seven and Star Wars and some other movies are based on these, these uh, you know, Kurosawa movies. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'll get to see, you know, the original. And, you know, it made me feel smarter to watch a movie. <laughs> I was 12 and wanted to, you know, feel superior. Um, so I I dove into those movies, immediately fell in love with Yojimbo and Sanjuro, notably because I loved the small scale of them. Smaller scale, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, then, then I started being like, well, I'll check out Magnificent Seven. And I guess, you know, I, I'll check out this Fistful of Dollars movie. It's, it's got kind of a silly title, but, you know, because all, all these all these spaghetti westerns, when you don't know the important ones, they all sound the same. It's all <laughs> like a bullet for the general or like, um, <laughs> like, oh, uh, I, I like there's even a one called a like, delivery for Papa. <laughs> yeah. Death rides a pale dog. Death carries a you, keep tr- you keep trying to come up with fake names and you keep saying real ones. Bullet for yeah. the General is a real one. Yeah, there's also a bullet for Sandoval. Um, there's, there's just a lot of ones that sound like that. Um, but anyways, um, I I came to it actually kind of backwards because I loved Yojimbo and I was like, I'll check out. There's there's multiple remakes of Yojimbo. I'll check that out. That's so I'm, awesome. I'm not trying to interrupt, but did, so had you had not seen Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? I hadn't seen any of them okay. at this point. I hadn't seen any of them. And then I I was reading about them and I saw the term Spaghetti Western. And I was like, oh, there's a whole – oh, I didn't realize that these Clint Eastwood movies were actually made in Italy. <laughs> I didn't realize that – because I was like 12 or yeah. 13. I, I, it's just, you know, Clint Eastwood is as American as apple pie, right? So yeah. I – uh, and then I was like, got very curious because I was at this age where for some reason I was like, if it's foreign, it's better. And I kind of assumed at this time, uh, rightly and wrongly, that if it was foreign, the um, the action would be better and more violent, mm-hmm. which isn't, you know, uniformly true. But like when I watched Yojimbo and uh, fucking... <laughs> Fucking a dude gets his hand lopped off and then a dog runs off with it. I was like, 
hooked. Like, that was like a transformative moment for me where I was like, oh, wait, hold on. This movie's rule. Because at the time, I was mostly watching these sanitized PG-13 action movies or these shitty, chaotic, R-rated movie, uh, like American action movies. And I was like, I want to see more stuff like this, like the sense of elegance and grandeur. And like, I know where the camera is at all times. And uh, I came to Sergio Leone. And then my mind was like further blown that someone was like, took this, this concept of a samurai, this like samurai without like real a code of honor or more of a ronin then and made a cowboy hero out of it because at that point i mostly associated westerns with coming back to what Aaron was saying uh old man movies john wayne walking in being the noble hero i'd be high telling that out of town if i were you <laughs> that's pretty good it's pretty good i think Thank it's better you, than either mine or aaron's combined <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and Peter's never heard mine. He's just rightly assuming it's bad. <laughs> so, uh, I say, I say, I say. Donald Trump's <laughs> a pretty good guy. <laughs> pretty good. You know, you that's know a terrible Donald impression because you know he would fucking love him. Well, he's being him. a little, you know, cheeky. Because <laughs> he's and an John old man, and that's what old men do. Have we mentioned that Anthony's really good at voices? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but that white hat game that a lot of these these mm-hmm. actors were doing, and even Clint Eastwood did in his early days, um, that was something that deeply bored me. The idea of like a pure yeah. white hero, yeah. pure white lily white hero, um, yeah. was just not interested to me. And I was like, I loved. I came to it from the idea of Toshiro Mufune and Clint Eastwood um, being kind of dicks, but at the end of the day, coming out on the side that I can respect. Well, I actually think that's like a really good um, segue into like how this the these films came to be, right? Because they were a reaction to both American westerns, which did big business over in Europe and Italy specifically, as well as like Japanese cinema and Kurosawa and stuff like that. Like it was, you know, the uh, the Italian film kind of like their their big budget epics in the. In the late 50s, early 60s were the Peplum movies, right? Like the sword and, and sandals type epics that were specific, specifically about like, you know, taking these like myth, these giant myths of like, you know, of, of, of which like, you know, Sergio Leone did one, which is like the Colossus of Rhodes, uh, a movie I haven't seen. And I almost watched it before this, but everyone's like, yeah. No, like, you know, you can read about it. It's fine. Because um, it's it's 130 minutes and it has, like, a good scene. But, you know, it, those movies were extremely successful, but they were really about, like, taking these larger-than-life myths and, like, bringing them down to human size. And so, like, that, even though they had no connection specifically to the American West – the myth-making of the West from the movies that were imported over to to Italy were were huge, right? Like, and also the idea of – but that clashed uh, especially with a lot of the filmmakers, including Leone himself, about like, you know, Italy in the 40s was uh, a super fascist place. Mm, you may have read yeah, a little – Some little, of the papers. Little fash. Little, little fascist. Um, and so like – Invented fascism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, great for them. Um, what a legacy. Yeah, what an export. The Catholic Church and fascism. And spaghetti. Uh, good good for Italy. And the mop. <laughs> Three. And pizza, though, right? Yeah. Little pizza pie. Little pizza um, pie. 
Uh, but yeah, so the, the, there was a lot of, I think, feeling like the American Westerns had a sanitized version and that, um, you know, the sensibility of Japanese cinema at the time more reflected the kind of uh, filmmaking that they were interested in. So even though, you know, A Fistful of Dollars is not the first Spaghetti Western, it is it is the one that kind of took all of those influences um, and really made it um, – made it kind of sing on the big screen where you essentially have a have a hero quote unquote who's who's barely a hero but really is just recognizes that uh the world is a capitalist system that uh revolution uh in any sort of way or fight against there's no such thing as good or bad there's lesser evils and greater evils but that uh the the best thing that you can do in a system that is broken on every level is to try to look out for yourself and occasionally someone who could use your help as an individual and so there was like a lot of stuff at the time about spaghetti western specifically being like and 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 Sergio Leone as like uh uh specifically being nihilist and i think that was something that like sergio leone specifically fought back against and that it was like the idea that like what we're doing is the same thing that we did in the peplum movies right we're taking these larger than life things and shrinking them down to tell a human story which in that case is a little different but when we're talking about specifically that concept of like an untamed west in a lawless place that the individual is specifically unable to rebel against um, or, or to stop these capitalist forces. And so individual nihilism is the only thing that makes sense. And that's a theme we're going to see more and more as these movies go on about like these individual being, uh, you know, human beings in larger than life situations where their reflex towards uh, selfishness or themselves is more based on the fact that like the system itself is a, is unwinnable on every level, and that gets even more interesting in a movie that we want, we're not going to cover this month, but something I would love to cover at some point, which is a fistful of dynamite, which is very much about social revolution as a as a means towards capitalism. Um, that idea of like even like so because in the time in, in the seventies in Italy there was a socialist party that was just backed by money. That idea of of one of the best ways to enrich capitalists was by funding uh, so like a socialist revolution, and that idea that it at the end of the day it's still capitalism was still hurting uh, individual people. So I would love to get into uh, that movie at, at a later date, but I I do think that that like watching this movie again for the first time in like probably like ten or fifteen years, um, it was so interesting to kind of see. That idea of nihilism as the only solution to and like a world where nothing quite matters, which I think is a little different take than Yojimbo or even a movie that's specifically kind of a remake of this, which is Django, which is why I watched it because Django is very much uh, like in that movie he's specifically killing like the the uh, the Mexicans in the village are are more explicitly the good guys. And uh, the American infiltrators are like the Ku Klux Klan, basically. So, yeah, like this it, one, the Baxters aren't really um, <laughs> the Baxters aren't really like that well drawn. Right. They're, they're yeah. kind of we see a lot of the Rojos, but yeah. we don't see 
we, we don't say a whole lot of the Baxters other than the Ro- the Rojas are, um, in, in air quotes, Mexican. <laughs> um, I meant to look up if any the, the, of them are actually They're non-union they're non- no. Italian equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every last one of them is Italian. Um, and then the Baxters are, you know, in the parlance of the movie, white. They're supposed to be white settlers that, you know, crossed uh, the Rio yeah. Grande. And um, th- there's, there's not really, like, any... There's there's unspoken racial animus, but there's not really like anything on the conscious level like Django has. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's not like part of the. Uh, it's not part of the text. And it's the fact that the fact that uh, the, the 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 Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name, um, he decides which side to side with based on who's stronger um is very telling right he's not like he doesn't align with the baxters because he wants to side with the white people he doesn't align with the rojos because he wants to stick it to the white people he's just like this is my means in to make money on both of you guys like this is my means of and so like the the, the accusations of nihilism do kind of make sense because like they they at least have a i could see they have having a basis um in a reviewer's mind because or a viewer's mind because um the man with no name appears to have no real moral compass. Like this is a this is a, a truly like an antihero movie. Um, he he shows some compassion in a limited setting, but it ultimately doesn't really am- amass to much. He's well, largely just looking for for you know companions. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think that tr- like the nihilistic part. I don't think is necessarily something that like. In in the interview I read, like he's he's not saying that like his movies doesn't have nihilistic components. Like they're not nihilistic. It's like nihilism uh, as a reaction to uh, a, a world that like it, it's kind of like individual uh, nihilism as a reaction as a political reaction to like a world that is uh, about like capitalist or uh, fascistic greed type stuff. Or even yeah, just like, like again, not condoning death. it, but yeah, because something yeah. I something I loved so much watching it this time was just how much you learn about the man with no name without like explicit backstory. Yeah, like yeah. like like how much you're able to infer when he rescues the the mother from from that uh, from that little building she's being held yeah. in, and you sort of you get this whole impression of something similar happened to him and like someone he loved and it like in a different kind of movie when he's looking off into the distance and like thinking about it you would definitely cut to a flashback but you don't get that and it's amazing yeah i love i love that the man with no name has no backstory because you get this sense that this is Maybe his 100th story of 1,000 stories before he finally, you know, plays his his, his cards wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, any of those stories could have been the one he played his cards wrong. But, you know, one day, his, his, it, presumably it'll go it'll go poorly. But, like, this, this, this takes place in a sort of um, – in a sort of the vacuum of mythology mm-hmm. that we talked yeah. about. We talked about with other movies where, like, yes, the two movies that come after this feel like sequels. They just as easily could just be Leone riffing on a similar character. Well, they're, they're as, almost know, like – Link in Zelda. Yeah, they're, they're almost like those 70 t- 70s TV shows where somebody's wandering around and, ju- and just like, like kung fu. Yeah, like kung fu. And like occasionally Hulk. gets so angry they turn into the Hulk. 
<laughs> and I think that there's like commonalities between the stories that do kind of remind me, yeah, of, of like Zelda or whatever. And like it kind of belies a modern, you know, MCU comic booky kind of focus where there's like little hints and little mm-hmm. little indicators that these guys are this is all in one continuity. And, you know, eventually these characters will cross over these characters like, no, he reused actors between the <laughs> movies because he specifically was like, I I want to. You know, I care about maybe this character coming back, but um, I more care about, like, I have a crew that I trust. I have cast that I trust. <laughs> I, I have, and the, I have well, a crew and cast that I trust and who can get this shit done fast. Exactly. What, exactly. And well, and one thing that becomes so much more obvious as the, as the movies go on, but he was trying to do in this movie as well, was that idea, like, you know, part of the reason that, like, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is set in the backdrop of the, of the, the American Civil War is because it's like – these people are not the heroes and are not affecting the major historical things that go on around them, right? Like that that most people – one of his frustrations with American Westerns was that most of the people that you saw were legitimately like affecting um, the, the – like the, the, the big incidents that they were a part of were, were the big incidents for this town or that stuff. Like they were – they were maybe not the heroes of like history, but they were the heroes of that moment in history. And and the thing that Le- Leon uh, Leone has a lot more to say on is uh, I was about to say the fake name that I practiced saying, so I didn't say his name to make that stupid joke at the beginning, and now I think I broke <laughs> my brain. But anyways, um, it's, it's like it's like when you ironically start doing something, eventually you just do I know it, do it sincerely. Exactly, uh, but uh, like that idea of that that. The people that he's focusing on in his movies have no effect on history, have no effect on the bigger picture. They are just people who are passing through history and are being affected by it. And that's not something you normally see in movies and let alone in Westerns that almost always uh, cast their heroes or protagonists as the people who are uh, affecting the change or affecting the iconoclast. The stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, also, I would note, as long as you're talking about, you, you both mentioned the 70s and also that he doesn't have a, a motivation, you know that they tried to give him a motivation, right, when they aired this on television in 1975? <laughs> Did that come no, up? No, no, no. So, I remember. I remember this a long time ago, but I don't remember any of that. Well, yeah. What, okay, what so did they do. So uh, they added an intro uh, directed by, weirdly enough, Monty Hellman. <laughs> that was four and a half minutes long, with Harry Dean Stanton as the person who said. Uh, it was a prologue to contextualize the character and basically justify all the shit you were about to see. Like, okay, there's a reason for this, that he is in uh, – the man with no name or Joe is in jail and he makes an agreement to let him out of jail on the uh, on the auspices that he will clean up – this is a quote – clean up the mess in San Miguel. What? Wow. Yeah, which is like – they, I mean, obviously they had to be vague, right? Because his instructions can't be like, okay, so here's what you're going to do. <laughs> so you're going to go I in, you're you going to flip ch- a coin, you're going <laughs> to pretend that it's random. Every, every, every day, flip a coin <laughs> and just be like, I'm on your side today. And if you could change sides ideally 10 to 15 times uh, to the point that you don't really know what's going on, that would be – that would be great. And if, and if you could flip you the coin it. in the open as often as possible, 
uh, and you know, maybe somebody asked if uh, if you've ever bet uh, with it before, and you can ask them what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss. And and I need you to clean it up. And by clean it up, I mean ideally, if most people in the town could end up dead, <laughs> like if we could burn this place to the ground. Anyway, like, I'm you your want, CIA. Sorry, handler. do you want one side to come out in power? Like, is there like a a thing that'd be better for America? Nah, you know, I think like everybody. I don't know, just go with your gut in the moment. But I don't know <laughs> if everyone could die. Mostly, that would be good. If everybody like, could die. Okay, that'd... should I prevent people from killing like innocent people or the military? I think you should or... encourage it. <laughs> I I think just stand back and just see what happens. Like, just really. Really, like, the vibe is chill, except that you want everyone dead. <laughs> as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a nameless drifter. <laughs> um, okay, so go there, and then I come back and get my money. Ah, If you could get as much money as you could while you're there, I think that would be... That'd be good, great. and then come back and come back. Tell me how much money you got, and we'll tell me how much money. How, mu- yeah, how much money? And, mo- and then, then in the like- and then in the wraparound segment, how much did you get? I got a fistful of dollars, and then like a smile in the nineteen seventies, like freeze, <laughs> like it's a fucking <laughs> TV show. The man with uh, no name but- shall return in for a few dollars more. Uh, yeah, it is, but that's like how I think incomprehensible this movie was to like. How we put it on TV, like it isn't the most violent and bloody movie. Like it's it no, isn't actually, there's like not a lot of blood. Some... Like I, I don't know. I don't think there's any blood until they start beating up his friend. Yeah, it's not about the blood. Blood. It's not about. It's actually got less gore than Yojimbo did. Yojimbo at least had that hand getting hacked off. <laughs> um, it's it's uh it's about the 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 velocity of the filmmaking, mm-hmm. the ferociousness of the filmmaking that it feels so much more violent than like this isn't Gunsmoke. This isn't a John Ford movie. This isn't any of that. <laughs> it's it's is this is a this is so much more direct and violent feeling. There's a there's a propulsiveness that he's like when he pulls his gun out from underneath that. Pond, you feel like a freight train is about to hit these guys mm-hmm. and it does <laughs> yeah and the, i think the last two things i'll say before we head to the the break and get into the plot a little more is that we mentioned yojimbo this does follow the plot of yojimbo uh quite a bit to the point that uh you know they got sued <laughs> it, uh, it's legally to- actionable, uh, amount of plot following legally actionable i think they end up getting like one eighth of the profits going and a hundred thousand dollars yeah <laughs> yeah and um, kurosawa kurosawa was nice about it he said it's like he's like look i i thought the movie was great like it's not that i didn't like the movie but why wouldn't I like it? It was my movie. Yeah, Kurosawa in a letter to to Leone, and Leone was apparently very excited to get this letter because keep in mind, Leone is an up and up and like a starting filmmaker. Yeah, he's, he's done it. one other movie like officially. He was yeah, like, he was an AD largely to this point. Yeah, um, he he basically directed Last Day of Pompeii when like the director either was too drunk or got fired or something, and then Dan he worked Clausen on Ben Hur of Rhodes. Yeah. Um, but he got sued by Toho. Uh, Leone got sued by Toho and Kurosawa sent him a letter. Uh, you know, Leone was very excited because at the time Kurosawa was a huge name, right? I mean, he's still a huge name, but he was a huge name like internationally, especially among film dorks, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, it's a fine film, but it's my film, which I think is a little unfair. <laughs> yeah. But this yeah. is which also is like, something that Okay, doesn't... Mr. Red Harvest. <laughs> Yeah, this is something that they both recount as being in the letter later, right? Like, 
Um, and, and then Leone came up with some bullshit that when he was in court that, oh, no, it's actually based on, I actually ripped off Dashiell Hammett. And then also like, no, th- I also ripped off something that no one can sue me for, which was some 18th century play. And I think he got that from a reviewer saying there were similarities. <laughs> I don't think he actually ever read the play. Um, it is weird that no one sued Django. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing it was because Django was, um, not. I mean, maybe at that point the ship had sailed or maybe it's because this movie was um, getting released. They wanted to release this movie in Japan. I, I don't actually know why Django was able to dip under it. And I think that is the last thing kind of I, I wanted to say anyways before we go to the break, which is makes more sense with what, what Peter had said about like, even though this movie doesn't have that much blood, like it feels very visceral. And I watched this almost back to back with Django, which is a movie, if you get the uncut version, it's, you know, again, similarly structured overall. Even if there is more of a like, this side is good, this side is bad. This Django likes to fuck women. This one likes to ignore them and let them go. Uh, it is a very gory movie. And like in the Blue Underground release, they make a point that like this is one of the first times unedited since it was originally released. Uh, because it has like people getting mowed down by Gatling gun. And even though it's not shocking violence in 2021, like it is, you know, there's a lot of corn syrup uh, uh, on, on set. And the one thing though, that like in watching these back to back, it was amazing that even though a fistful of dollars doesn't have any really blood in it, um, the violence does feel rougher in a fistful of dollars because the like Leone out the gates basically is just this amazing director. And so, you know, I'm sure we'll you know, Fistful of Dollars is actually a relatively simple movie. There's not a lot of plot. There's not even all that many moments, but there's the moments of like shootouts and gun violence. I can see why this became the template for which all other spaghetti westerns started pulling from because it is like nothing that I have ever seen. Um, nothing I'd ever seen, obviously, then when I saw Good, the Bad, and the Ugly that repeats a lot of those moments or repeats that, that, that amazing viscera of the of the shootouts but since either like when i watch again something that is literally taking from uh fistful dollars has more gore has more blood and it doesn't it doesn't have the same impact uh while still being a good movie or i go back and watch any of these those other like classic westerns it's just nothing quite matches this and and even though he didn't make that many movies i'm not surprised that essentially all of them from this point on are considered some level of masterpiece because you are just watching someone who is doing something that no one else in the world did whether they served spaghetti in that country or not (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah uh aaron that's a good i think that's a good uh lead in do we want to talk about Fistful of dollars, aka a fistful of dollars, aka for a fistful of dollars. They had some trouble translating Italian. <laughs> Just the articles, though. What's yes in Italian? See. Si. Oh, okay. Great. I knew that one.
back to Aaron and Peter go to the bathroom. Today's film is A Fistful of Dollars, uh, in which Clint Eastwood, playing a man with no name, named the man with no name, walks away with a considerable sum of money clenched in his fist, uh, which is, of course, where the film gets its title. Now, it all begins when Mr. Eastwood, or Mr. No Name, walks into town uh, and witnesses some rather uh, peculiar behavior uh, in which um, a small child uh, runs from one home to another uh, and is summarily thrown out uh, after he embraces a, uh, a woman who we are told in context is probably a maternal figure, if not his actual mother. Um, at this point, Mr. Eastwood uh, goes into the town and uh, finds it a rather rough-and-tumble place full of, uh, how should I say, crime. Uh, and he witnesses much crime. Uh, and he, of course, gets a rather unusual idea that he might profit from the violence and chaos which is occurring in the town. And so he uh, decides to join forces with one of the large places. Uh, he, of course, chooses not based on any intelligence which he has gathered or any um, information that he has gathered from the town, but rather with a coin toss, perhaps uh, signaling the somewhat nihilistic attitudes of the filmmaker and um, the times in which many people believed that the world was ending rather, rather spectacularly and... Um, as we, of course we know now, was only a preamble to the many ends of the world which have been moving non-stop. Uh, and so Mr. Eastwood uh, joins up with one of the gangs, he infiltrates them, uh, and uh, soon enough is pitting the two sides against one another, the, uh, the Hammett maneuver. And so he, well, you know, it would make much more sense to just watch this rather than explain, but I will attempt. Uh, so... He gets to know some of the gentlemen, well, gentlemen is perhaps <laughs> going a step too far, for they are rather ruffians. Um, he gets to know some of the persons involved in the gang, and, um, well, he soon finds out that uh, they are rather even more cutthroat than he initially believed. Uh, they stage a rather gruesome, um, a rather gruesome ambush in order to steal uh, quite a lot of weaponry from uh, American soldiers who are selling um, to Mexican armies. And, uh, well, it's just a, a rather brutal scene. Uh, not a lot of blood, but, you know, you, you feel it. You feel it in a way that you don't often feel it in these violent, brutish movies. And so, Mr. Eastwood, um, well, he, he decides uh, that in order to move his plan forward, he must kill two of the men and then make it seem like they were killed by the other gents, which, as you can imagine, creates quite a stir among them. And so he kills them and sets them up in a cemetery, and this leads to a rather um, amusing shootout in which uh, two different sides are trying to reach men that they do not realize are already dead. Um, and then one gentleman kills the dead man, uh, believing that he has prevented uh, the other man from gaming the upper hand. Uh, now, at this point, uh, Mr. Eastwood, who has become quite friendly with a proprietor of a local inn, uh, has learned that uh, his wife 
has been abducted by one of the bandits and is holding a hostage, and so embarks on a rather a rather elaborate ploy to release her and reunite her with her family and um, have them go out into the wild, uh, never to be seen again. Well, and at this point, everything seems to go um, rather poorly. Um, Mr. Eastwood is found out by his employers and uh, is rather tortured for a little bit. It's, um, it's quite... Quite violent, quite a betrayal of trust on uh, on, on both sides. If I, if we are being honest, um, and you know he um, he does manage to escape uh, and heals, but wouldn't you know it? Um, those ruffians find the man who is nursing him back to health, and um, well, they begin to torture him as well. It's all rather uncouth, very not above board. If only the Geneva Convention existed, let me tell you. Um, so eventually, uh, Mr. Eastwood gets better, and he decides that, um, well, he's going to even the scales uh, after he notices the the gang he was working for brutally murder the uh, their enemies. And so there is no longer uh, any sides to play against one another. In fact, it is just a line in the town now, power-wise. Uh, and so Mr. Eastwood uh, fashions a crude bulletproof vest out of a stovetop, uh, much like in the feature film Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, I am unaware if Mr. Zemeckis had seen the film when he made this decision, uh, but it seems most likely. Uh, so Mr. Eastwood fashions this bulletproof vest and um, advances on the men, and he is able, of course, to kill them all, including uh, the leader of the pack. And... Um, well, he survives, of course, thanks to his ingenious uh, fashion in, invention, and um, rather moves on to the next adventure, as it were. The Lonely Man Pleem, uh playing as he walks off down the highway. And that is A Fistful of Dollars. Thank you for joining us on Aaron and Peter Go to the Bathroom. Oh, quite lovely. Quite lovely. <laughs> you did just... And now the story of the time spaghetti was in fact banned in England. It was 1943 and, um, well, the Italians, you know, were being a bit fash and um, Winston Churchill said, you know what? Oh, just true. No more spaghetti. And people were rather annoyed because even though the Italians were being a bit fash, it is quite delicious. Didn't like the spaghetti very much. He had a he he at the time he said that he preferred rigatoni, <laughs> and his, and his head of cabinet said, "Well, you know, just because it's a different shape and consistency, it is still a, a kind of pasta, which is, of course, uh, in a broader general term, spaghetti." And uh, Winston Churchill had him executed. Little is known of that. <laughs> Winston Churchill quickly retorted to the cops, "I may be drunk, but in the morning." You will still be dead. Uh, and then he posed for a statue, which now stands in uh, Shingahangam Square or, or some such. I think it's in Hammingshire. Um, well, that seems highly unlikely. Hammingshire, really in London of all places. <laughs> Who led you in here anyway? I came in through the chimney. <laughs> oh, a chimney sweep, are you? <laughs> uh, very, I think I have a couple of shillings. I'm not a sweeper. I just leave the ashes from other people's chimneys in your chimney. Oh, are you? Are you, are you like that chap who um, who dresses up in the one-man band get-up and seems to have a new job every time I go out? I am actually sort of a Santa Claus, but for destroying people's homes in the middle of the night. All right then. 
Or are you perhaps playing both sides? Are you trying to be some sort of Clint Eastwood American cowboy? Well, let me tell you, my Reagan and my Eastwood are not that far apart. No, they're very, they're very close. <laughs> I mean, this realization at some point, and then I got really, like, doubly mad at Reagan. Like, because <laughs> he ruined the Eastwood, I'm, and then Eastwood ruined the I'm Eastwood. I'm already low level mad at Reagan at all times, but having another realization of another level of terrible that he's in, that Reagan was ripping off Eastwood's all American hero thing. Reagan didn't really talk like that in his early career. Mm -hmm. He had he had a little bit of that weird like stiffness, but it wasn't That was just bad acting. That, yeah, that was just being a bad actor, right? That was that was just trying to act against a monkey. Um, <laughs> and being upshown by the monkey. Monkey was far more natural. <laughs> it's like there's a star in this film and his name is Bonzo. And there's a human who keeps trying to drag him down and Bonzo won't let him. And that is something to admire. They only let me kill eight of the monkeys. So after the seventh one lay limp in my lay limp and lifeless in my gravely, grassly hands. I decided I said, eight was enough. <laughs> I would treat this last monkey with enough respect to get through the last eight months of the shoot. I think the, tr the trick with any Eastwood is that you you just can't say too much. Yeah. Because, like, what, once you start saying too much, then you're, like, then w no matter how good your Eastwood is, you're in Reagan territory. Yeah. Like, if he orders a sandwich for some reason, he can't say, like, more than two ingredients. He, it just has to be, like, no pickle. Yeah. Like, that's, that's all. Yeah, it's got to be, like, as far as he ham. <laughs> so Anthony provided us with a lovely recap, or sorry, a famed historian, Anthony uh, Pizzington. Uh, Pizzington of the West Hampshire Pizzingtons. Provided us <laughs> a lovely recap. Let's talk about the man with no name a little bit. The man Delorean with no name. He has a name, doesn't he? I think so, but who cares? Bob Mandalorian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> The man with no name uh, is is like we talked about earlier. He's sort of a fable figure, right? Mm -hmm. um, he is an antihero. He comes into town. He's sort of a bystander at first, and then he gets embroiled, and he gets like he gets a little bit excited by the whole the whole prospect of of this um this venture. Um, but like talk is a weapon to him. Yeah, like speech is a weapon to him just as much as his guns. And he usually uses his guns when. It's not that he's a con man, so so to speak, but he is kind of a con. No, like man, he's right? he's like, like he he uses violence to like to make his to like to make him seem more attractive to people. He he uses his violence to yeah to make himself an asset. Yeah, basically the Ro the Rojas are like, well, we need a good murderer. We only have eight good murderers. Sh shooting four people is like the equivalent of him walking up to uh, Rojos and like lifting his skirt so he can see his ankle. <laughs> it's flirting because mm -hmm. they're they're people that are intimately interested in uh, in violence, right? So he can be like, "Is that a gun in your pocket?" And he's like, "Yes," and I just killed four people with it. <laughs> is that a gun in your pocket? Are you happy to see me? It's my gun, and I also have an erection. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> It's so close. It's razor thin between the I accents. got it because I killed the monkey. <laughs> that was the real bedtime for Bunzo. 
Um, but, uh, in each of these three movies, it starts off with him sort of being this, like, passive guy, and you're like, you just kind of, you just, like, don't like the villains. Mm-hmm. You're like, I want to see him, him manipulate these guys. But, like, at some point, he gets, like, brutally humbled. In this movie, he gets the shit beaten out of him in a pretty brutal yeah. scene. Like, the, the sound editing on that is, is, is rough, right? Mm-hmm. And his escape is so good. In Good Man, the Ugly, he gets humbled by, sent out in the desert without his hat, not any water or food, Mm -hmm. and like left out to die. And like that is, uh, that's like a really great way to get you into his headspace because he's such this like unflappable, cool hero. And like, sure, John Wayne would lose a couple fist fights every so often. Actually, I don't know if John Wayne ever did, but <laughs> um, certain Western heroes would occasionally lose a fist fight and have to come back. But like, they usually weren't like in the villain's lair and the villain is trying to figure out the best way to make their death long and horrible. <laughs> it's not usually like that. It's like for, for all of the movie up until that point where he's been this untouchable badass, it, it's the moment where you realize just how human he is. Yeah, that vulnerability is when you get on his side. Like, and he spends a good part of the third act he, literally like, in a coffin. Yeah, like he's he's either like laid up in bed or like just being wheeled out of town in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, let's talk about. Do you guys want to start with? Um, do you guys want to talk about like what makes him cool? Like what an antihero is and what makes him cool? Yeah, that's it. That seems like, like a probably... good uh, a good starting point. Yeah, Aaron, do you think he's cool? Yeah, he's a he's a. I mean, no in real life. <laughs> no, he, he's right. he's the opposite of cool in real life. <laughs> he's he's, he's Wait, the sorry, opposite sorry. of cool. <laughs> do you mean Clint Eastwood or do you mean nameless drifters <laughs> who commit violence? Uh, both. I mean, na- <laughs> nameless vif- dr- vif- drifters who incite violence are always cool. <laughs> they're, always doing, they're always doing super chill shit like murdering half the town <laughs> I think uh, that yeah. in this movie the town is down to like a coffin maker who doesn't have a job anymore and a barkeep who no one wants to go state <laughs> I mean I, I don't think anymore. the coffin maker doesn't have a job I mean he well clearly... he just doesn't have anybody to pay for it I think there's the, the implication the that like, like oh. it, it, does anyone pay for this town? Uh, and neither of these families seem like they're really like concerned about. Well, I assume he like guilts them proper burial. I assume he guilts them. Henchmen. Like like he's like, look, do you want to be that guy who just like dumps a body somewhere? I mean, come on. What what are the other crime lords going to think? All westerns where there's a coffin maker, the implication is that like there's some sort of government force or like government uh, uh, loan that goes out to these. Like, hey, look, we know it's the Wild West. It's going to be a lot of coffins that need to be made. Um, like, we're we're just going to allocate a certain amount of resources to each municipality <laughs> so that they are able to not have dead people and it, that just lay in the street. And it was the last time government worked. <laughs> Oh, well, that's something where Clint Eastwood would agree with you. When they say I hate every government program, I tell them no. I remember the humble coffin makers who would bury 50, 60 people a month in their humble pine boxes. Those were the good old days. On the government's dime. Literally a dime. That's what it cost to build a pine box back then. Some Like, their sheriff is dead, which means I think most of the admin of the town is dead. Does this coffin maker just like... Oh, shit. I murdered everybody that pays me to bury people. Uh, I mean, he seems pretty excited about more more deaths. Like, he's not actively encouraging it, but he... No, because, like, then he, he, then he gets uh, to, like... I, 
He's has a retirement plan like, I, to not yeah. have anybody alive to bury. Like, here's the, like, I don't think he's in it for the business. I think he's in it for the fun of it. <laughs> like, you know, he's a man who loves it. Like, it's not a job. It's a calling. Yeah. It's a coffin yeah. calling. <laughs> uh, and he's just. It's a call from beyond the grave. Like, you know, he, he gets somebody who is like, oh, what if, what if I make a coffin out of oak? What would that look like? <laughs> Oh, too heavy. Fuck my back. Fuck. <laughs> I, I wish I wish these people would participate as pallbearers. <laughs> Instead, I have to hoist this thing on my shoulder single-handedly. Ugh. But he got super uh, jacked. You should, if you want to make a body more lightweight, you put it in a um, a, a, a dehydrator for a little bit. Mm. Just an old trick. It's an old coffin, coffin maker. And somehow I doubt they have the technology in this particular great trick if you want to get into the coffin making business and have access to say Ron Popeil level of levels of technology <laughs> I'm just saying there's there's ways to dehydrate a body <laughs> just saying just saying. all right yeah I mean uh, you just cut open the parts with water and let it all drain out I mean that's a start yeah so it's a way to do it but he's so cool I mean even when he gets his comeuppance uh in the third act like he doesn't seem angry about it no like, he like, recognizes he... that that's a that's a cost of doing like this isn't this isn't a potential inevitability based on the path that he's chosen and like he you know this is probably assuming this is not the first town where he decided like what if I try to get money from people especially because the reason he gets caught is because he helped that family escape. Yeah. He sees that as, as like a noble price to pay for th- this, this good that he did and that this good that he's unaccustomed to doing. Or like a sense of, uh, um, Oh, you know, of course, as, as I try to actually like the idea that like empathy is, is, or, or trying to do a noble deed, something that's not specifically selfish, uh, to gain money. Once I care about something, um, there's a, there's a chance I could end up paying, you know, some level of price for that because I am no longer doing it, um, in the way that he does throughout the movie, um, strategically or with like a with a way to you know he he always essentially has a plan in place right like i'm gonna you know send these people both out to the graveyard and so uh there's gonna be i'm gonna have these people come i'm gonna make these two dead bodies lean up uh uh, against the grave so that uh you know the other the other people think that there's survivors they need to kill i'm gonna you know that's all done it's it's complicated it has the potential to be messy but there's like a method to that level of like Machiavellian scheming. We're just like, I'm going to let the people I don't want to get hurt go uh, has no, uh, you know, he tries to be somewhat strategic about it, but, but there's no ultimately. Yeah. Like there's, there's, there's not a grander scheme because at the end of the day, um, they're just going to be gone. And he didn't really, he, you know, he did a little bit of trying to make it seem like the other side did it, but even that he pays a price for, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of, uh, playing two sides against each other stops working when he accidentally through that process gets the other side mastered. Mm-hmm. Who's going to do at that point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and like, it's important to note that like the, the viciousness that we talked about, uh, earlier, and we'll talk about more when we get to the sort of filmmaking, when the slaughter happens, the Rojos finally, you know, decide we're killing the Baxters. 
and they soak their their you know the 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 boards with um with liquor and <clears throat> they just set the house on fire and park outside and just shoot them as they come out down to you know men and women and ever even the sheriff just everybody um when that finally comes to that it is brutal and like the Rojos are, the Baxters are not indicated to be good people, but the Rojos have an extra level of, like, viciousness, which means that, like, the movie kind of culminates with, like, the worst of the worst getting taken down, mm-hmm. right? Because um, there's that scene where the Rojos are, or Ramon, <coughs> is slaughtering the cavalry. Mm-hmm. Um, he's shooting all those, those, um those men off their horses, the U.S. soldiers off their horses in this weird, like, cup game. <laughs> no, I, th- I think, I think <laughs> he's shooting like... I think he's shooting the Mexican nationals. Oh, he's shooting Mexican nationals posing as U.S. soldiers. Yeah. I, I'll get to it in a second, but, like, the, yeah. Um, the, the, he wants to set off an investigation, which will hopefully end up with the Rojos on top or whatever. Like, it's this complicated <laughs> cup game. But, like, the actual act is so sudden and so vicious. And it goes on. The the, the scene where he's using the, like, uh, air-cooled or water, uh, water the water-cooled machine gun mm-hmm. to shoot all those guys down, it lasts no, it goes a on forever. long time. Like, and, and you, yeah. like, like, I feel like that scene normally, like, it's over so quick and, like, you, you get, like... You get a couple people shot, but like mostly it's the the element of surprise. But like in this case, he opens fire and then he keeps they keep going for individual close ups of people just falling off of horses or or like gripping their stomachs as they're they're shot to death. Like you you see almost like every individual member of that army die because they've been shot with this giant machine gun. And sort of comically, like, because, you know, it's, you're dealing with horses. Right. The, sort of comically, the horses are just kind of confused as their riders fall off and the horses just kind of wander <laughs> off. Like, it feels like it feels like this, this guy, uh, uh, Ramon, is like, I don't kill horses. <laughs> <laughs> they may shoot horses, but I don't. I mean, I, th- I think he gets a couple of horses. Like, when you're – it's just kind of funny that he's unloading, like, hundreds of rounds and, like, I don't think you see a single horse fall over. <laughs> well, those horses cost extra. Yeah, that would be – it would probably – I'm glad you don't see horses fall over. Do you know how they used to make horses fall over? I do not. They put, like, a – they put, like, traps in the sand. Oh. And then when oh, the yeah. horse would set off the trap, it would yeah. drag them down by their neck. And sometimes they would break their neck or break their ankles and they have to – actually kill them <laughs> um yeah cow tipping is really easy for the budget conscious but horse tipping is really like <laughs> but uh let's talk about the let's talk about the plot because like let's talk about the, the, the plot game that the rojos are trying to pull at the beginning of the movie that kind of sets everything off and then our hero so to speak jumps into the middle of i've seen this movie a bunch of times i was watching it very focused coffee in my hand middle of the day i could not make fucking heads or tails of the plot this time and i don't think i could originally either like he's like and then we'll pull the u.s soldiers will or the mexican army will come and investigate and then they'll be really mad at the baxters for some reason and then also at the end of the day then we'll succeed it's like he did the the underpants gnome thing from south park where <laughs> he's one. like we'll do a bunch of murders and at the end of it profit no like i well, at the, at the beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> yeah. He's like, look, yeah, I like murder, okay? Thing, murder, profit, murder, profit, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Profit. <laughs> I mean, I think it's more just uh, the the second part of that equation. He doesn't care, right? <laughs> like yeah. the question mark can be a question mark because there's not an aim he's necessarily trying to achieve besides doing whatever he thinks will be helpful to him in the moment. Yeah, like I like I I think he, Ramon thinks he has a plan. <laughs> Uh, but his plan is really just murder and hope that it all works out for us. <laughs> his plan is also way ris- riskier than just murdering the Baxters, which he does in about an hour's time. <laughs> well, I mean, his plan uh, for a while after he gets all that gold, after massacring uh, massacring that, uh, that military unit is like, oh, peace with the Baxters does make sense, right? Because I don't want... Uh, I don't want a lot of like authorities looking into where I got this gold. So infighting potentially leads to more scrutiny. So it makes sense for me right now to to make peace. And, you know, the man with no name, Clint Eastwood, is very much like, well, that's not going to be good for what I'm trying to do <laughs> in this particular area. So so it, it is funny that this is one of those movies where – Without Clint Eastwood's involvement, there is a good chance that uh, at least uh, it may have been temporary, but uh, a peace would have would have occurred as opposed to continuing to be like, well, they called you stupid. <laughs> we're not stupid. We're smart. What do you mean they said we're stupid? Uh, well, I don't know. That's what that's what I just heard them My say. My feelings are well, We so think they're stupid. And then he goes to the other people and goes, you know, they, they said that you were stupid. <laughs> I heard them. I had them on tape. <laughs> what is tape? <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll get there. Dude. Your grandkids are gonna. It's love like it. sorry, I met I met phonograph. Yeah the the ending of this movie was so funny to see for the first time because I had seen the ending of this movie a million times <laughs> uh, before watching uh, before watching this movie. Like In uh, Back to the Future Part Three. No Part, yeah, part Two. two. Oh, well, both. No, part well, three, he, yeah, part I mean, he uses he uses the trick in Back to the Future Part Three. No, but he no but he, he, uses the, the he uses the trick in Part Two. Doesn't no. he? Part Three is oh, the uh, no wait no Biff's watching the movie in Part Two. Yeah, so like you're actually watching, you know, the where he's like a bulletproof vest. This guy thinks of everything, um, and so you watch the ending of the movie. So it was like, and I Back to the Future Two is. Potentially the movie I've seen the most times, mainly because in elementary school I had very limited TV time um, in general. Like I'd certain I couldn't just watch TV, but like I had specific times. One of those was after school I could watch uh, the Disney Afternoon. So every day after school I could watch like an hour of of TV. Essentially, there was a good year in there. <laughs> Where uh, I had borrowed from a friend Nick, who lived a couple couple doors down from me, his copy of Back to the Future Two, and I just spent a year just in taking that hour and just watching that movie over and over and over again in like the second grade or third grade or whatever. Like, uh, and so I I don't know like the movie I've seen the most in my life. That one definitely could potentially be the movie, and as a result. Uh, I had just seen this ending so many times. And so when it finally like occurred in the movie, even now when I rewatched it, you know, having seen this movie before, uh, I like the sense of like 
familiarity I I have when like that those moments at the end appear on screen is like like the feeling that I think people have when they're like oh did I just walk across my own grave <laughs> like <laughs> uh, just because it, it is so those moments are so well known to me as part of like my uh, unending repetitious watching of uh, of Back to the Future Part Two. Yeah, and I had seen I grew when I grew up, uh I was obsessed with Back to the Future Part 3. Um and so I saw the reenactment thing with the steel plate a bit like a, a, a thousand times also. It was that was a that was one of the first movies Back to the Future 3. It was one of the first movies I ever like showed my friends. Um I don't totally were they know conf- why. Were they confused? Nah, I mean, not it. Those movies are pretty easy to follow. He goes. I did watch. Time. I did watch Back to the Future Part Three first. I watched uh, three, two, one, and then two. Yeah, like the, he goes back to the West. He needs to go back to his current timeline. Like it's pretty easy to explain. And ZZ um, Top's there, but <laughs> I think two is harder to explain. Yeah, t- t- yeah. I w- well, I was confused at the opening scene of because I I still remember it very vividly. Like three was a Sunday night movie, which would have probably been like, you know. 92 or something like that right so it it was a huge thing like the world tv premiere television premiere network television premiere back to future part three and we watched it and i i do remember being very confused by the beginning which has the it doesn't just have like the recap of the clock tower thing it has the recap of the clock tower plus after michael j fox goes back to the future another michael j fox running out in a different outfit to, to yell at Christopher Lloyd about how he's back from the future and then Christopher Lloyd passing out and just being like, I don't know what's going on at all. At all. And then eventually, you're right, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, yeah, like the, the, the first 10 minutes of that movie is very perplexing if you've never seen any of the other ones. Yeah, I uh, was gonna say is, but that's that steel plate thing is just such a great, a great ending. But it's also it's one of those things like this movie created Clint Eastwood as a figure and it didn't just create like Clint Eastwood as like, Oh, he's a tough guy. No, he's the tough just guy. Just an action movie. Yeah. He's the tough guy, but he's also like, he's this sort of eternal figure and this image of him coming out of the, the smoke as almost like a ghost. Um, when I believe, like, multiple characters think, like, he could be dead, we never found a body, but something weird happened here, and then there was a fire, and then he just kind of disappeared for a while. But him coming back fully strong and just approaching us to challenge us and walking through that smoke like a ghost, and then all of a sudden, Ramon, the by the Rojas, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, regard, the most, uh, the best killer He's got perfect aim. He never misses the heart, right? Um, he, uh, that Ramon uh, hits him over and over again. He just keeps getting up. He keeps getting up. And that, like, leads, I think, into, like, what the, my favorite type of Clint Eastwood follow-up Western is, which is, like, this sort of eternal hero, this folkloric mythic hero. And that has a few components, and one of which we already talked about, that these movies are sort of, like, this is sort of an, an eternal character, um, the man with no name that like, you know, the next movies might be in the same chronology. It might just be, you know, similar stories with similar themes, same actor. Right. And uh, Clint Eastwood made um, Pale Rider 
and uh, High Plains Drifter, and both of those, and as well as some of his other his westerns, feel like they're about this like avenging voice of the West or this like ghostly permanent figure that's striding out and like to me this character that can't be killed and this actor that can't be killed sort of um which you know with with eastwood's longevity (laughs) the jury is still out um that very much reminds me of the fact that like american audiences at the time the fistful of dollars was supposed to be released um were had had largely rejected the western it was on its way out um, and that leads into something I think, Aaron, you wanted to talk about a little bit, which is that like when this movie was going to be released, um, you know, it's apart from the, 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 you know, the fact that, um, you know, there was an active lawsuit against it. That's one thing that delayed its release in some countries. But, um, this movie was released because there was, it was, its release was delayed because of, um, uh, like a lack of, <laughs> like a lack of confidence, which is just very funny to me. Yeah, I mean, there's even now, I think there's something like 500 spaghetti westerns that were made and like maybe 50 that have ever been released in a proper way in the United States. It might be a little bit higher than that. But, um, you know, there and then even then, of course, then you have the problem of like uh, with the way that like, what is it like? uh 60% of all movies released on video have never been released on DVD or streaming or something like that. So like there, there is a lot of those that did get a release and then like, there's just, they, they kind of don't exist unless you're willing to track down a VHS copy uh, or I guess go to Italy and hope they've been released in some, some format there. So uh, yeah, this like, you know, it, America as a whole was kind of done with the, with the Western by the time this movie came out, like it was, it was not exactly something like TV wise. It was obviously a staple. Uh, and, uh, although at that point, you know, there's three television networks, you could probably put anything on. And for the most part, it would probably garner a audience. But, uh, but for the most part, for movies had moved on from, uh, from Western. You are, I mean, you have like the, you know, the, the death, the death of the Western, John Ford movie, who is obviously one of the most iconic, uh, you know, Western directors, then that comes out in 1962, the man who shot Liberty Valance. So, like, we're, we're at the end of this when, when, when the spaghetti Westerns start taking off in Italy because they were getting delayed releases, uh, of, of American Westerns and the directors who were making the, the sword and, uh, sandal peplum films were, um, you know, we're getting inspired by those movies as they made their way over. So they were a little bit, you know, both inspired, but a little bit late when it came to where their inspiration uh, was coming from. So, yeah, like it wasn't. Uh, so it was uh, I think it was Khan where this movie premiered, though. There was also just a suspicion that like uh, in a lot of ways, like um uh, it, Italian specifically, even though those those movies became a big hit, like. What did what did a bunch of Italian directors have to say about the American West specifically? Um, and so there there was a lot of like trying to hide the fact that these were um, these were Italian, even on the world stage, like not trying to draw too much attention. So they they usually, uh, re, you know, tried to get American stars in the main role. As a matter of fact, Henry Fonda was the person that uh, Sergio Leone wanted for this, which is, of course, he he wanted Henry Fonda for all of his movies. <laughs> he wanted him to play opposite Clint Eastwood in uh, 
in for a few dollars more. He wanted them as one of the good, the bad, the uglies in the good, the bad, and the uglies. Um, and eventually, you know, finally got uh, got him in um, in uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Same with Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson was a second choice. So it kind of tells you like that these people were falling in love with these like Western staples and trying to get them in their movies and eventually settled on Clint Eastwood, who was, uh, you know, a television star on uh, Rawhide. Um but uh, but not a movie star, and so so like these are kind of almost like they they were meant to be disguised originally as like you know hey no one's gonna want to pay money to see an Italian American western so like we're gonna we're gonna make it seem like um, that's not the case and that's why they when it premiered at Cannes I believe or uh, it um, it was under the name of directed by Bob Robertson. So even though that movie at that place got a lot of accolades, this movie became a huge hit in Italy. Uh, no one knew who Sergio Leone was until like the next one, basically, because yeah. and because it was released as Bob Roberts too to even further yeah. Americanize it. Right? Um, each one got a little bit more a little bit more American until Once Upon a Time in the West is like uh, a, a, a fully American principal cast, right? Um, yeah. And, um, and and another thing to throw in is that, like, the guy who they originally wanted – this isn't the first Spaghetti Western. There was no. uh, a, a previous one um, that, again, I'm, the name is slipping, which is almost maybe, uh, you know, a, a, a lesson in and of itself. The lead in it was an American actor um, who – they they were gonna get for this, and then uh, he was like not really interested in the script, and he recommended Eastwood, and he said this actor has said in, in a quote, "My greatest contribution to cinema is telling Sergio Leone to go meet with Clint Eastwood," um, which is kind of a funny funny thing. Like they were hungry for a sense of like American legitimacy, um, and then these movies ended up making a ton of money, not just in America. Uh, Fistful of Dollars more money than Yojimbo in Japan. Yeah, and also, I mean, worth noting, not only was this not the first one, this was not even, like, in the first 30 or 40, right? Like, this they Spaghetti Western starting to get made in Italy in 1961. So this is three years after. But, but this is the first one that really kind of became first an international hit, and then three years later, when they released this and the other two in the same year in America... Um, huge, a huge successes in America at a time when, you know, the Western was for the most part, it's, it's kind of first death, so to speak. And that's why it's so cool to see this, to have the movie culminate with this quote unquote dead man, um, walking out, refusing to die. And it just made Clint Eastwood a star. Like that's, it's a star making turn throughout the movie, but having this powerful sequence where you're just a static wide shot of Clint Eastwood refusing to die as he marches towards this climactic confrontation. Like, that's the sort of shit you don't forget. Um, do we want to talk about the filmmaking a little bit here? Like, why Why does this feel different? Why were American audiences that didn't fucking want to see a Western all of a sudden they were like, this is worth leaving the house for? Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, uh, at the end, like, it's 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 not as complex as like you may think like you can talk about the violence and and some of the other things or just the anti-hero nature but like most of like you know american westerns as a whole 
are are like almost decades removed myth making of stuff that like didn't exist, right? Like our 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 idea of the American West comes from <laughs> comes from Western films for the most part at this point in our history. And a lot of the, but that but, but a lot of those came from like guys who survived and were trying to make themselves look good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's like a uh, Blood Meridian is based on like a horrific real life account of a guy who is like, yep, I did a lot of scalping at the border. But like everything we think about for the most part of like the town with the sheriff mm-hmm. and like a law, like it's it's not, you know, it is it is from the myth making that was happening as the West disappeared, yeah, yeah. like in in the 30s and the 40s and stuff like that. At that point, you know. The untamed West was was was, you know, in the same way that some people like, you know, in in 2020 or 2021 go and go, I miss the old days when polio was a thing (laughs) uh, and other diseases that we can like these people in the 30s and 40s were like, hey, everywhere we go, we can talk to people by cars and and planes and and we can drop, you know, phones and we can drive places in our cars uh, and everything else, and you know they were long. You know, uh, like like most recent myth making that cultures do, they were longing for the time when quote unquote like men can be men, and you had to make it for your own. And that's you know very very specifically that whole manifest destiny and the idea of like one person taming the West is like very specifically an American uh Amer- an American uh thing and the movies reflected that the that ideology. And so, you know, when you have um this type of movie that kind of posits the American West as, yes, yeah, sure, lawless um and everything else, but also just completely a or immoral. Like that there was a, a violence and a cost to be paid and no one was – like this amount of, of bloodshed doesn't really leave space for heroes and something. That's, you know, that's the that's the thing that automatically comes after mythmaking, which is poking holes in your myths. And it didn't come from American directors. It came from specifically a country that had dealt with um, – you know, fascism, which is not, you know, quite what the American West was, but in some ways it, it very much was that in, in its myth-making, right? It's the idea of we are the people deserving of of this land and, you know, and the people that we've displaced, indigenous people and everything else, like this is ours for the taking and we are the, the rightful Aryan or whatever else, you know. And, and winners write history. Exactly. And so, like, there there definitely was a recognition of those themes in in Italians who had been affected by Mussolini. And Leone was very much one of those, right? Like, his dad was a filmmaker in, in the 40s who was uh, severely um, – severely like uh, censored or persecuted or had to stop being a filmmaker because he was on like house arrest. Yeah. Because of Mussolini. So like, um, you know, there, there is definitely a sense of like a recognition of an element of of fascism, but also like, uh, you know, a a filmmaker like group that, that most of the, the filmmakers that made, uh, you know, Spade Westerns came again from those, those Peplum movies, that idea of, um, blowing up myths into somatically larger than life scale. So you just have like this perfect mix of of uh poking holes in myths, blo- like blowing them up 
in a way that also just visually is unrecognizable to Americans because they shot, you know, they're they're not shooting in the back lot of California. They're shooting in Spain and other places that have landscapes that look foreign to 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 Americans, and also just recognizing that like. You know, as some American Westerns started to do with like the Oxbow incident or later on, you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance and stuff like that, that like that the 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 violence depicted in our heroes is not is not inherently heroic just because they are killing the right people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a it's a good way of putting it. And it kind of speaks to like Leone having this like love hate with America, because like Leone by his own admission, worshipped American film and like loved American cinema. Um, and but when the war was ending, he saw Americans as occupiers. Like mm-hmm. though he was ha- he was happy to see you know the fascists gone. He saw these occupiers as you know another bully. Um, and so like you can see in the movies this sort of like love hate for americans like he loves this idea of this american singular hero this guy that can walk into a town and make his own fate but also um a guy that causes a great deal of destruction like you could write a whole book about how westerns uh when they try and undo the myth they actually reinstate the myth um and like because, like, there's always a sense of romanticism. I think there's very few Westerns that don't have a sense of romanticism. I, my, one of my favorite movies in the world is The Wild Bunch. And um, I'd love to do that on the show um, at some point. Um, and, but that's a movie that's very much about undoing the myths of the West. And it's very much about, like, how horrific it would these guys would be. Like, how, how much a, a pack of murderers and bank robbers that ride on horseback and like a stray bullet can take their life out like they get very cutthroat and they be- the movie begins with them leaving one of their own behind um yeah <laughs> like uh and shooting a random guy in the middle of the street like in front of a bunch of children like the, the wild bunch is an amazing movie but it's very much taking part the mess the west that movie still has this sort of romantic myth making that like um the good like the the two the two lead characters are like almost reflecting who are trying to kill each other and hunting each other down are almost reflecting on like the good old days well yeah because it's 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 death of the west because of technology right so it's it's still very much like in the same like wavelength as most american westerns from the 40s and 50s which is like most of like there's there's basically two major conflicts in like american westerns at the time and sometimes they're they're linked they're, it's either like you know one man standing for je- justice in a lawless frontier or uh the the encroaching technology that's making their um their you know free existence in the wild one yonder uh is a is a threat right and wild bunch is very much about the death of the west in the sense of encroaching technology and like these scrappy outlaws as the only people who are like truly um are truly free which is the the epitome of myth making right the idea that like uh freedom from freedom to commit violence without being having like a way to track them down or box them in is is the only true freedom is uh yeah i mean that's like like hashtag uh america dot text right <laughs> yeah exactly i keep thinking of that uh that quote attributed to, to truffaut that uh 
nobody has made an anti-war movie. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel like the problem is anybody who cares enough about a subject to make a movie about it loves it enough that they're going to get that tint of romanticism on it. Otherwise, the movie's just going to be like an unwatchable like screed. Well, there's a reason they're called anti-heroes, right? Like, yeah. like, like a- most anti-heroes are, are just like to use a, a common Western parlance, like they're bad guys, yeah. <laughs> but they're bad guys that the movie has focused on enough that you naturally are rooting for them because it's their perspective that you're seeing everything, uh, everything go through. Like, you know, Roger Ebert's famous quote about movies being empathy machines is a double-edged sword, like, um, which he recognized. That's not like – like that that you can basically like show movies through the eyes of monsters and just by the natures of the way that filmmaking and fiction and, you know, narratives works, you're seeing the world through their eyes for a couple hours. And so, that can be, you know, that can be impactful both for – as a way to – you know, show empathy to or uh, as a way to experience life in a way that you haven't, which is important. But also in, you know, movies where the antihero is the hero or the protagonist, uh, maybe justify uh, some despicable acts in a way that ultimately, you know, as you start to analyze it, feel uncomfortable. And that's not to say that, like, I don't fucking love these movies or something like that. But I also would say that these movies, like, you know, the, all of the worst people you know probably love mm-hmm. these movies for the, all the wrong reasons. And in the same way that they love, you know, fucking The Shield or The Sopranos or, you know, more more modern examples of the antihero for all the wrong reasons, too. Like People that you hate know. Skylar and Breaking Bad because she's getting in Walter White's way. Yeah. Just a nag or something like that. Or, like, you heard about that all the time from uh, – about, like, The Shield or something like, Mackie's just trying to clean up the – he's trying to do the right thing in a system that won't let him. And here's his wife yelling at her about take care of our kid with autism. He doesn't have time. He's trying to make you rich or something like that. And it's like, oh, man. Like, like this, this, this is not what the show's about. But I can, like – You can see it, why it's, they – It's tough. You can see you can see why because there is a there is a part of I think even the most you know hashtag woke people that watch those movies that find themselves rooting for them and if and if you can't separate that from from you know like you can watch this movie and recognize like Clint Eastwood like to Peter's earlier point is a cool motherfucker right like he's a cool dude and you know he he is calm and collected and seems to always have a plan even when the plan falls through that's when he does does the right thing he saves the women and the children and stuff like that and and as long as you don't make that your persona at the end <laughs> and, and see him as like uh, um, um that morality in the face of that that minuscule or modicum of morality in the face of immorality is something to be uh, embodied. You're probably good, but again, that's that's not just how movies are designed to make you think naturally. We had been built to think of cowboys, um, or at least the generation before us, right? Like we we've all only grown up in the post Death of the West kind of Western, right? Um, 
the post post if any post post yeah yeah um like our parents grew up with death of the western westerns uh <laughs> the western so, has been dying for uh, so long yeah <laughs> uh, it just won't fucking die um but uh th- that image of the cowboy that i grew up with is like this loyal noble hero who come in and save you from you know um the the bad cattle rustlers or you know in a less uh approach a less acceptable way um the scary savage native americans like the cowboy will stand for you know uh truth justice and and christian god um against against the these these awful native americans who are just trying to not be scalped um and that that was obviously always a lie that like cowboys were these noble figures like it was always a lie we white people brought scalping to this nation just as an example um, we like, make movies about the alamo basically to this day where we're the the people at the alamo are the he- like are the heroes like ron howard made an alamo movie like 15 years ago with like dennis quaid and shit like that when like uh, which is really the idea of like pushing back against, uh, you know, <laughs> the Mexican Empire, and and like when like every part of it is like, hold, like you first of all, you know that wasn't our land. We are doing the like, but also the reason that everyone there wanted Texas as our land, uh, so they could have more, a a big slave state. Like it was for slaves that they wanted Texas. So. Uh, that's our that's our big like that's a remember that's, the to Alamo. this day. Uh, yep, <laughs> but like, only the, parts I, the problem is we remember. don't remember the Alamo. I remember right? that's why I don't trust people from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like we don't. That's I mean it's a, probably a lame joke, but like we don't remember the Alamo as like this band of people wanting to take land from other people so they can have slaves. Yeah, they could take land from other people so they could take labor from other people. <laughs> yeah, like. Not as good of a Ron Howard Disney movie that they made in the 2000s. Like, it, it is it is amazing the lengths that our country has gone through. I mean, I learned in elementary and high – I think all elementary through high school that Manifest Destiny is a good thing. <laughs> like, the, like, we learned in history class the propaganda of, of the American West, right? And so – uh, and I guarantee that is uh, – and I, I was from the – you know, I was from I, – I went to school in the 90s. Um, and I imagine it hasn't got that much better because of the way the textbooks are mm-hmm. we, um, I mean, we, we probably all had the same textbook no matter when we went to school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah all designed Texas. for Texas school board approval. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the – and uh, that's like, you know, Buster Scruggs' first segment like yeah. threw a lot of people off. But like – that is what we're dealing with is these like horrific murderer this this what the reality of cowboys were was these horrific murderers um that just wanted to be able to um use some some cover of uh freedom and capitalism to do whatever they wanted to to people um mixed with this this uh, I, I'm using the word mix very specifically this Roy Rogers Tom Mix 
uh, sort of image of the West as this like this noble gentleman cowboy is going to sing you a few few songs. He's going to set up his campfire and, you know, maybe stop some cattle rustlers, but, you know, nothing too bad. Um, and like we had we had we we, we had these these dueling uh, you know the, the 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 myth up against what our actual reality was, and the myth that we knew was bullshit, but we accepted anyways because America doesn't have myths, which we talked about in our Tall Tale episode quite a bit as well. Yeah, um, well, and, and that's why you kind of have this thing that, like, at the end of the day, you realize, and this is this actually really goes into what Leone was doing with his movies in general, right? Like this idea of the individual is powerless to prevent uh, history from happening, right? Um, again, that, that gets more explicit as his movies go on, and, and I'm excited to talk about those. But that is kind of always where he started. Like, you are, as an individual, you are powerless to stop the march of history. And that's something that, like, again, happened with the American West that a lot of us had to learn in retrospect. But it's not something that has ever stopped happening right like i think a lot of lefties like ourselves were like pulling our hair out at the concept that like george w bush has gotten some weird rehabilitation as like a a pretty good president (laughs) and stuff like that that even like um you know democrats and liberals and other people have come to and it's just because like at the end of the day like you are almost powerless against the tide of the story that history wants wants to tell so even though you know people were there with our own eyes and probably were like you know i mean bush in 2008 had what a 27 percent approval rating like that doesn't speak to a country that was ready to embrace him but like since everything becomes through the eyes of history they look back on that era of fondness compared to the worst monster and instead of instead of recognizing like uh that being a uh, you know Donald Trump or, or current Republican fascism and stuff like that being a uh, you know outgrowth of the th- of of the thing that happened before. Instead, we you know we we myth make Reagan and we myth make George W. Bush and all these people that are like are not looking back in the past. So it's not a surprise that the American West um, has turned into. Uh, you know, starting in the 30s and the 20s was like, hey, this was a pretty cool time. And we can tell these great, like, like stories. Uh, you know, Peter, Peter, one of our first conversations about Westerns in general was about, like, that Westerns, you know, in the 60s didn't die. They moved to science fiction. They moved to the Star Treks and, you know, Wagon Train of the Stars. Pitch. Yeah, famously pitched Star Trek as wagon train to the stars. Like we're gonna we're gonna do the same thing. We're gonna meet new cultures. We're gonna go <laughs> and from kill town them. to town, except the town. Yeah, the town. Yeah, yeah. And sleep with them. Yeah. And what's stuff the, like what's that. the quote from the jacket? I want to meet new and interesting people and murder them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, but it's instead of going town to town, we're gonna go to planet to planet, so we can have more interesting adventures and like. Uh, or we're going to be an outpost like, you know, we did Ghosts of Mars three or four years ago, right? Like that's – it's just a Western, right? And on Mars with zombies instead of uh, indigenous people. But you you had John Carter uh, where, where you had a Western hero go to Mars. Yeah. Civil War yeah. hero. Um, for, for the wrong and side. And so like <laughs> – yeah, I mean that's, that's going to happen in, in these movies too. Um, 
because uh, remember the that's the thing, but that's the other thing. That's a myth making, right? Like that the 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 idea that people that fought for the Confederacy are more interesting protagonists because they they like have all this baggage. They lost a war. There was a lost cause that they fought for. They believed in, and they didn't succeed. And so that is like. That's that's a character or a premise for a character to build a story around. Whereas, like, um, it's not as interesting to make a story about like a union general who then goes on to other adventures or something like that. So, like, you you see that, and like, you see what Le- Leone was getting at, right? Like that, like here here are people who are just cannot stop the 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 spread of 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 myth making and so instead of engaging in that myth instead of engaging in this idea of this two town with warring families what if i don't engage right like what or what if i engage in a way that i feel um allows a uh, moral justification for myself so that can be either getting money uh a fistful of money or, uh, you know, actually saving the people who are the true innocents in the bloodshed. And so I do think that's why, like, one of the one of the things that, like, you know, people have said about, uh, you know, how and this is such a specific criticism, but I think it kind of rings true a little bit. Like, I think one of the ways to puncture that level of mythmaking and history being this rolling tide of of healing and covering up all wounds is through art that affects it, right? Like, we saw that very specifically in Vietnam movies. Vietnam movies and the movies that came out in the 80s and 90s about Vietnam are like – and even this, the late 70s is like I think the reason why Vietnam culturally is still seen as this complete fucking mess. Like – uh, Peter, in a previous episode we did Rio Bravo, you talked about uh, Green Berets and stuff oh, like that. Yeah, and obviously that's laughable as a movie, and like was rightly laughed out of theaters at the all time. But imagine instead all of Hollywood, the Oliver Stones of the world, and uh, the the Francis Ford Coppola's of the movie are making Green Beret type movies and and focusing on the the heroism that was found in in the Vietnam War. You look where we would be. Nowadays, and maybe there is a different view of the Vietnam War because we were able to catch up to our mistake through creating a myth around it or 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 catching up to maybe not even a mistake, but just things that are embarrassing to us as a country. And instead, it felt like artists of the time really nailed the mistake to the wall and made people deal with it. And so now Republican, Democrat, whatever else, you usually see Vietnam as this colossal failure on all levels. And I think one thing that people have been, it feels minor, um, that have been frustrated about, about like the George W. Bush or, or Donald uh, Trump era, is that the the critical media of it has been complete fucking garbage. And as a result, it doesn't feel to be taking hold, right? Like, Platoon, I think you can actually say, had an effect on the cultural conversation about Vietnam War. I don't think W <laughs> did about George W. Bush. Yeah, do you think War Inc.? What about Southwind Tales? <laughs> What's the War on Terror movie that everyone talks about in film school and shows to their kids and makes them go, holy shit, what a colossal clusterfuck? 
It's just the two uh, Bigelow movies. I mean, and those I don't even think, I think all they taught people was that like war has a cost, which is something that filmmakers already taught us with Vietnam. So Yeah, like, I mean, the problem with both of those movies is that, again. Oh, Bigel- I thought you meant Deuce Bigelow. I was like, what the fuck does Deuce Bigelow have to do with Vietnam? <laughs> uh, European Gigolo is a, is a veiled. It's a veiled allegory. Um, allegory for um, the Iran-Contra affair and how it's led directly into modern conflicts in the Middle East and Iranian forces in Syria. I love both the Bigelow movies. Here's the problem with them. They're they're subtle, right? Platoon is not subtle. I don't know if you watch Platoon or, or Born on the Fourth of July or Casualties of War or Apocalypse Now or whatever else. They're, they're fucking not subtle. And I think... Apocalypse, uh, Apocalypse Now is essentially a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think... And a lot of those movies are, right? And I think... Like, again, this is not a criticism of the movies, but The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty are very much based on, like, we're going to show all, like, the realistic take and we're going to get that you as a person living in these times are going to be impacted by that. I don't think if you show The Hurt Locker to someone 20 years in the future or maybe someone who doesn't have a daily memory of the newspaper – paper articles and have friends that you know you knew in high school that disappeared and stuff like that because they were national guardsmen who ended up going to Iraq and stuff like that I don't think that you are going to get the same thing out of that that me as someone who didn't live through Vietnam would get out of seeing Born on the 4th of July or something I think they're just too like I think they're too drilled down and that doesn't make them bad no, movies but it does make I just think ineffective for like historical trying documents. to correct yeah like, trying not, to not correct even, the, not even historical uh, documents the scabbing like, over of history yeah you're, you're right like historic like historical opinions almost yeah because history if and i forget who wrote about this but like history especially from the old country the their the own country that lived it like has a natural inclination to scab over right no one really wants to consistently take um, inventory of of your country's sins, right? And that's why our history textbooks, even when they are undebatable, national sins and stains, like, it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, everyone thought slavery was just a good labor practice, but there was some disagreement when we tried to end it. But eventually, we're like, yeah. Gotta stop it. Whoopsie daisies on that one. Like, it it just has to be framed in that because we just are like as a as a human species seem to be incapable of consistently reckoning with um, with national like sins. Right. And the American West is one area where I think you had these like like this movie and other movies that Leone and other did, you know, definitely reckoned with it, but also reckoned with it with almost a too cool way. (laughs) <laughs> where it felt so, you know, just from a filmmaking uh, perspective, it, it felt like, um, it felt like, uh, you know, like, you know, seeing the first Quentin Tarantino movie or something like that, where it's like, oh, or Scorsese, like, like you see Good Goodfellas after how many is, you know, seventeen years of mob of Godfather ripoffs, and I'm sure you're a little bored of mob movies, and then you see Goodfellas, and you're like, do I want to join the mob? <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, and, we'll talk- and so like, 
so even though this is like Goodfellas is extremely critical of that lifestyle and and the spaghetti westerns fistful of dollars is extremely like I, I think actually taking a uh, critical hammer to to the myth making it just gets lost in how fucking cool it is yeah sometimes. like like the, yeah. the, the, the whole I, I think thing by the time where... he got to Once Upon a Time in the West he would he would basically by the time he got to Once Upon a Time in the West he was like he had realized that and wanted to take it apart more and Ducky Sucker as well continued that that uh, well and and Once Upon a Time in the West we'll talk about box office failure after the success of these three movies so yeah and it's yeah yeah, there's we'll talk about that but yeah it's uh that's taking apart anthony Uh, i was just i was just gonna say that uh yeah like the that that uh yeah there's there's you look at the machine gun massacre here and then you look at the opening like slaughter the, the slaughter that opens uh once upon a time in the west and yeah, like there, there's there's no comparison to like the 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 one here is kind of cool, and the one that opens Once Upon a Time in the West is just b- painful and brutal. It's not supposed to be as sexy um, because the directing here is so sexy. He uses all these quick zooms onto the action, these quick cuts. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a directness. Uh, let's let's not skip over sound design. I mean, you, um, you, yeah. you can't talk of- about Spaghetti Western without talking about the incredible sound design. Because the, the the way the bullets hit in this, um, you know, actors are doing they're doing their falls, they're falling in the pig trough, mm-hmm. they're spilling out of windows. Like the actors are doing what actors. That's can the do. end of this There's suit. A little bit more blood, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I will say it's like twenty percent acting, eighty percent gravity. <laughs> <laughs> well, like if they were not pulled towards the earth quickly, like most people are, I think these scenes get tougher. Yeah, um, which, you know, if they had to wear some sort of weighted diver belts, maybe it would make scenes a little tougher, more dangerous. But um, but yeah, this is not the sort of thing that like John Ford did where like John Ford would do these sort of painterly frames mm-hmm. even for action scenes. Yeah. And like scenes that we were like, wow, that's really pretty to look at, but I don't feel a sense of dynamism. I don't feel a sense of movement. Um, and like... You get the you get those beautiful pr- frames of you know uh, in real bra like uh, you know not real bravo sorry um and the searchers like everybody kind of surrounding uh, some tents and you're like wow that's a beautiful shot we need to really get into the action um but it feels kind of and this is not to knock John Ford but this is just like the style that he conducted his films with um is yeah, it was the little, style at the it, time it could just be it could just be a little stiff um, he did the best he could with one yeah. eye. He did the the best he could do with one eye, but like Leone, two eyes, twice the action. Um, And like the way that he uses, Leone's uh, uses uh, Mm close-ups, not just as reaction shots, but close-ups to build drama, which is obviously like the entirety of the third act of Good, Bad, the Mm -hmm. Ugly, right? Um, (laughs) Well, that was one, you know, in one of the books. More as portraits than necessarily pure reaction shots is really what separates this from the historic Westerns before it that like um, he is, he is hoping to set a mood and a style and he's using faces as landscapes as opposed to simply like faces as means of storytelling. Yeah. Like that, that's actually a real, I I want you to keep an eye on this when, when you do the other movies, there's, there's such an interesting progression in the final showdowns where Fistful of dollars, there's so much wide shot in Eastwood kind of getting shot and standing up and like and keeping coming. And then you move on to a few dollars more where 
they're all standing in the circle and you see that circle but he'll cut for like close-ups of the watch and the uh and the faces and then you get to the good the bad and the ugly where there's almost no establishing shot like it's just face to face like face tight face tight face tight face like weapons tight face it's just all in there it it got to a point of like subjectivity that like feels it, it, it it's it's amazing when you watch Goodmedia up against um later movies that would riff on it um like Edgar Wright's you know uh fistful fingers and such and but also like more serious movies like um uh, uh let the corpses tan and like what those movies are essentially doing is like doing what leone was on track to do in good and bad the ugly if he had gone and made a fourth movie in that style which is like um i'm gonna actually get rid of a lot of like the basic plot shit and just get right to like the feel of being in a moment the the, well, one, it, the feel in hands the close-up of craggy faces like he wanted to get to the texture well, and one of the things that like and and why sometimes it's okay to read uh read books about film uh I don't want to pretend like this is my my recognition, but you know one of the things i I remember first about reading about Leone films is Roger Ebert has this great essay about once upon a time in the West, and we talked about how uh you know in the opening scene it's a it's a wide shot that becomes a close up without the camera moving like this expansive like um expansive landscape that all of a sudden you recognize someone is and you see the crackly faces and the guy breathing and chewing and and standing still and um in one of the books that i i read which i would actually so i would say i did read two books about leone's filmmaking as a way to prepare and to sound smart uh i don't think either of the books are really all that good but uh so just a, but one of them uh one one of the things I did find interesting, there were nuggets here and there that I, I found interesting. Also, the ratings on Goodreads support the fact that the books I chose were not all that good. Um, but uh, one of them by uh, Robert uh, Cumbau talks about how like that that kind of close up style with like the 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 constant close up on the 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 faces being um being intermixed or sometimes existing within the same shot as these expansive wide shots is a is an example of like a director really taking the themes of his movies and and turning it into a filmmaking style because as i mentioned before like his movies are very much always about like these individuals within the expanse of history and and myths and the old west and like that that way of directing reflects that right like you have these these constant close-ups on these like sunburned like somehow Clint Eastwood was younger than me when he made this this movie and he looks a hundred years older than me <laughs> um, just because like it, it shows that that individual in the in the scope of the landscape uh, that they are, which is exactly what he was always trying to uh, show in his films. So you don't need to read that book. That's the one interesting <laughs> nugget I took. From <laughs> I got more out of reading reviews at the time as, and like the Eberts than I feel like I did reading two whole fucking books. So yeah, let's go to final thoughts. Uh, Anthony, do you have any final thoughts on, you know, for all the talk of, of nihilism and, and Eastwood, like doing the right thing for that family. I think it's fascinating that, uh, you do like for as much as they deny nihilism, there is kind of baked into the action of it the fact that Ramon shoots through the heart, and Eastwood ultimately wins against him by hardening his heart. 
That's a great call out. The end of the movie is kind of like a weird trick. Like Eastwood could have beaten him in a one-on-one duel yeah. or something. But... And then his innkeeper buddy like saves him from the one guy he missed. <laughs> like he needs to beat him down in several different ways, right? Like he's found that his Achilles heel is that he only shoots for the heart. <laughs> Even when like... it doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh so he's got that and then he um after his achilles heel thing you know fails uh he's he's like all right we'll actually do a final duel and then he just utterly smokes him like in, in half yeah. a yeah. second right uh yeah great the, i love that moment um pulls out his gun and kills the four people surrounding ramon in like a millisecond it feels like without without camera tricks it's it's an afterthought basically he's like yeah. you weren't the threat ramon was the threat <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna clear all these pieces off the floor uh the board like i like i like it's it's barely even a lift to the gun for him like it doesn't seem painful and then i'm gonna you know make ramon uh suffer i i've been pretty serious especially this back half so i think my i think my final thought should reflect that i think the most important part if you have a blood feud with someone in the same town that you live in you gotta find a bigger town like it's a it's a street i don't i don't quite understand how like people went to the store to buy things like theoretically like walk to church or something like that uh, like the town is eight buildings in a block and there's a blood feud like you gotta have you just need more space if you're gonna decide that one of the other families in the town so you're, sa- uh, you're, you're saying they need some sort of social distancing I just saying like look Hatfield McCoys they have different giant tracts of land and then they you know, they fight through there. Like, I just think the general machinations of daily life would be severely impacted by your, you know, blood feud. And then, like, imagine if, like, your neighbor kidnapped your wife and mm-hmm. her kid. That'd be weird. Like, it feels like, like, if, if someone, like, in Minneapolis, St. Paul kidnapped my wife and, and uh, 50% of my kids. <laughs> Only half? Um it would well. I'm just trying to make a one-to-one analogy here. Like if someone in like let's say even like a smaller town, like a Bismarck, North Dakota, a town of like a hundred thousand people, right? Like I have a blood feud someone there, and then they kidnap someone in my family. Like it feels like yeah, I'm gonna have to do some work to get them back. If someone eighty feet from me takes my kid, like at the very least, maybe I don't know how. Like maybe they have armed guards maybe it's risky to get him back i i feel like at least i'm making mm-hmm. an attempt sooner you like literally you can spend literally an hour and go through every building in town yeah it just it's it's too small and that's why like i i always say it to the you know when i go to speak at, at schools um i always try to to tell the kids like blood feuds are great <laughs> especially if you're trying to gain wealth and snuff out other people who are powerful just make sure you got the space to move around in it. Like, you know, like stretch your legs. <laughs> put your kid put put your kidnapping uh victims in unidentified mm. bunkers as opposed to like the other house with a roof. I don't yeah, know. Practice just- and practice self-care, right? Like if something gives you an enormous amount of discomfort, like say your blood feud enemies. Um, maybe don't make it so that your ba- the balcony of your bedroom faces the house that your I blood know. enemies are. Like, and also, like, 
part of self-care is protecting property values where you live. Like, if you're going to blow up other people's house, like half the town, you know, I, I don't know where you're eventually getting tax revenue from. And, and, and like, you know, um, making sure that you have enough money that the bank has loaned you for your mortgage so you could potentially sell it to other sellers or, uh, you know, increase your overall wealth is like something to consider during your blood feud. Like, don't – when you're having your blood feud, it's very easy to just put that aside and focus on – murdering other people and like peter said when when you're in the middle of trying to murder a different family think about yourself okay like it's okay it's okay to go i want to be able to take a walk and not be worried because i'm walking eight inches that someone will kill me you know if if you're not doing physical activity you're you're not going to be able to torture the people you're holding close that's important too like how are you going to get exercise when the gym is owned by the Rojos. <laughs> that's Switzerland, though. Well, of course. You, you I, gotta, it's gotta that be, was not defined. That's uh, the only way that they actually have their their uh, their peace talks is by spotting one another. <laughs> but that's a good call out, though. Switzerland is a neutral country and cowards, of course. <laughs> but but uh, yes, Anthony, thank you. Thank so you for having much me. I'll, I'll see you on. again in five years. Yeah, this is so fun. <laughs> I'll see. You. We'll again, again. Don't know when. Don't know when. Don't know when. Probably in five years. I think. I think we know where. <laughs> right here, right here. Over in Skype. the liminal space. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, this is great. And the, anything uh, knowing that this comes out the first week of April of 2021, as you would know, because we're basically yeah. there. Um, what do you have to promote? Uh, uh my. My Instagram feeds, my uh, my photography one, which is uh, T Pizzo, and uh, my my other one, the uh, at uh, Pizzo underscore cartoons, where all my illustrations live. Anthony is also so. If you look in the, um, uh, this displays on both Spotify and uh, and SoundCloud. If you're listening through there, and you see the artwork for this this episode was designed by Anthony, but also if you are aware of our show's logo. Uh, but no, uh, our our logo and the, I even used the picture I, I just uh, that today. as my Twitter at yeah, my Twitter avatar and my letterbox avatar. I like it so. I do, much. I do like the way you came um, out. In that. So, uh, yeah, way better than real life, and that's why I have chosen <laughs> that as the way that I interact with the world. But no, uh, Anthony's a fantastic artist. I love I love the artwork that you do, um, and uh, I definitely have just seen it only like. Uh, I think the amount of like detail and focus that you put on stuff too, like the the the, the artwork you did for this episode oh, is fantastic. <laughs> so uh, uh, again, extremely appreciative of both you uh, guesting on this show and contributing to uh, so much to the way our show looks <laughs> to the world. So so yeah, I think I think you said five years, four years. I think is oh wow, I'm moving up on the great. on the uh, on the guest list. <laughs> Fuck, we're gonna have to invite him back in August. Now I feel bad, Peter. The logo captures um, the, 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 the crucial dynamic, which is Aaron being a blowhard and me being baffled. <laughs> it's the central dynamic of the show. Uh, well, what's really nice about this is we're two episodes away from our 250, and I'm not sure if we're gonna make it. But Anthony, <laughs> thank you so much for appearing on what could be the last episode of We Love. Well, Love. I'm honored to sink uh, this ship. <laughs> Good night.
Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)